Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. In today's message, you're going to hear Pastor Will talk about hope that lies ahead of you. Enjoy the message. When I think about work, I think a lot about all of the unfinished projects that I have. Because when you say the word work, it hits my brain and I go, yes, I have a lot of that, right? So if, if you're any, anyone in here like me, you have a lot of unfinished things that when you hear the word work, you get some stress kind of on your shoulders, right? For, for me, my seven-year-old went to Costco with grandma, and what they always do is they bring something home, something from Costco that we weren't expecting to buy, something from Costco that looked really fun in the store, and he brought home the NASCAR Chevy Camaro Lego kit. And I'm telling you, this is no ordinary Lego kit. You are literally building a functional engine out of little plastic pieces. They're not Lego bricks. Oh, no, no, no. I don't know how they expect a seven-year-old to put this thing together because I'm 33 and I can't even figure the thing out. So what appeared to be a great Saturday afternoon family father-son activity has turned into weeks and weeks and weeks of getting home from work. Dad, when are we going to finish the NASCAR? Dad, do you have time to build this NASCAR with me? And I was like, no, I don't. I, we have a lot of work to do, buddy. Like, we, we, I set aside 12 hours for this thing, and I've only got through the first bag, and there's like 10 more bags in the box. So with all the good intentions, with all the, the good plans of, of good things to do, sometimes the hurry, worry, and busy of life just kind of drowns out the work that we're called to, right? And so the question that I wanted to ask this morning, and, and the place that I wanted to kind of bring us to, is how did Nehemiah approach this work in light of all the fears, in light of all the, the negative consequences that would come his way. And, and this morning, I want to actually turn to uh, the book of Romans and learn from Paul about how prayer is supposed to keep us focused on the hope ahead and keep us persevering through the good work that God has called us to in the midst of life's everyday situations. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 27. And if you want to turn there to get ahead of it, we're going to kind of do a, a quick snapshot survey. But I want to leave you with the main point of today's message before we really dive into the content. And the main point is this. Prayer connects us to the hope ahead. Prayer connects you to the hope that you have in Jesus. And there's three aspects we're going to look at. First, prayer affirms our identity. Second, prayer addresses reality. And finally, prayer keeps us focused on the hope that we have. See, a lot of us have different understandings about what prayer is, right? And, and a simple, basic understanding of it is just talking with God, right? When you go to God in prayer, you're simply talking to him. But for a lot of us, prayer has like a different application, right? Even some, like, you don't have to be a believer to talk to God. You don't have to be a believer to ask God for things. You don't have to be a believer to have this thought in the back of your head like, oh, you know what, I really should be talking, connecting with, and, and, and encountering God in my everyday. I'm feeling that sort of guilt. I'm feeling that sort of obligation, right? You don't even have to be a believer to have an opinion about who God is. But what we're going to find in this section especially in verse 14, is only after becoming adopted as sons and daughters of God, only after being brought into the God's family and receiving the Spirit, do you actually get a different connection with God. And this brings us to our first point, is that prayer affirms 
our identity. If you've ever wondered, how do I receive the Spirit? How do I know that I'm a son or daughter of God? How do I know that I'm a part of his family? What we see from the passage this morning is that the Spirit's purpose in our life is to teach us, guide us, direct us, and bring us back into an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. And and the Spirit is going to bring you into that relationship with God unlike anything that's even fathomable before you meet him, right? You're going to connect with God completely differently than anybody who doesn't know the Holy Spirit. You're going to be able to have that relationship with God. You're going to be able to understand what it means to be a son or a daughter of God completely differently than you ever did without him. And this connection is not based on duty. This connection is based out of a love. It's based out of, a, out of being pulled into this relationship with God uh, by the Father. So if you turn to verse 15 in Romans 8, it says this, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And as I, as I was studying this passage over the past month, I was looking at this word, Abba. It's only used three times in Scripture. And it's a specific name given to God that, that it's kind of like, it's kind of set aside as like, a, as like a, a, an intentional name to describe the type of relationship that the Spirit brings us to with God, right? In my spare time, I watched this old show from the 60s. Uh, may, some of you may have heard about it. It's called The Rifleman. And essentially, it's this old Western show about a dad who's trying to raise his son in the middle of the Wild West, and he's trying to raise up a kid and help, you know, attend to law and order in this crazy, you know, un- uncivilized time, right? And what you see throughout the show is you really see depicted on the screen, but even, even more than what you see on the screen behind you is you see the way that the son addresses his father. You see the way, the, you see the, the closeness of their relationship. And the word that he used to describe his father, which is different from how he describes everybody else, you know, everybody in the show is, yes, sir, I'll do that, sir, you know, I got that, sir. But when he talks to his dad, it's paw. And the way that he says that word paw, it has a, it has a different meaning. For the Gen Zers in here, it just hits kind of different, right? Because the word paw communicates authority, it communicates intimacy. It communicates obedience. It communicates, you know, like all of this trust of a parent-child relationship. And the son saves that word specifically for when he's talking to his father. And that's the kind of way that we can understand how the spirit in the lives of the believers draws us into a relationship with God that's completely foreign to us without him. The spirit connects us with God intimately. The Spirit allows us to understand the Father's authority. The Spirit allows us to be obedient sons and daughters of the God that we all love and serve. And this is the language that you adopt only after being adopted to sonship. And Jesus instructs us to remember our position as sons and daughters of the Father uh, as he's encouraging us to pursue that relationship with him. So, how does, how does understanding our position help us, right? Like, what, why is this so important? Why are, we, why are we talking about this? Well, the way that you see yourself before the Father impacts the way that you will see how prayer functions, okay? If, if you don't see yourself as a son or a daughter of God and you just kind of see God over here and me over here, prayer is going to ex- seem extremely mechanical. Prayer is not going to have any, any um, gusto in your life. It's not going to be something that you're going to prioritize, Because 
prayer doesn't seem like a worthwhile activity until when? If, if we're not children of God, if we just kind of see prayer as mechanical, when do we pray? We pray when trouble comes. We pray when all of a sudden the world's crashing down, the sky is falling, and we have no one else to turn to than to cry out to God, right? And, and we sit there, and we pray to God, and we plead with him, and eventually the sun rises, the trouble dissipates, and prayer just becomes an activity for somebody else to participate in, right? It's something that someone else needs to do. And if you remember the story from Matthew 6, Jesus was talking about these people who would go out in public. They'd pray these big, elaborate prayers. They'd pray to be seen, right? They, they, they'd pray so that people could, uh, you know, like, oh, look at this guy. This guy surely knows what prayer is. They prayed when they had to. They prayed when they thought that there was some sort of social benefit to them that their prayer would be received, that they'd get whatever benefit they're looking for. And he calls these people hypocrites and says that they've already received their reward. But instead, Jesus in Matthew 6 teaches us to seek out God in private, to seek out the Lord uh, away from all of those people and to find our true reward in our intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. And in fact, Jesus calls the, the act of the hypocrites, he says that's not even prayer at all. And so Jesus is pleading with us to long to spend time with God. And that's why he, he, when he goes through the Lord's Prayer, he says to start by praying our Father. He says to start by reminding yourself of who you are and your position as sons and daughters of the Lord. So, as I've been, as I've been reading about prayer, as I've been, as I've been reading about uh, Jesus teaching us to, to, to go away, to find God in private, um, I was recommended a book from Pastor Ron Ock. It's called Led by the Spirit. And he taught me something about intimate prayer with God that I had never even considered before. So I'm taking a quote here from the book, uh, so just check this out. He says, If we're ever going to have a strong relationship with God and a strong prayer life, it must begin with the prayer closet. We must learn to love praying by ourselves and finding the great joy that comes from spending time alone with God. Because only there... Can we learn to set our hearts' objectives and directives on God as we dare to shut the door behind us and watch pleasure and entertainment take a back seat to God? You know, we're talking about the fall kickoff. We talk about all of these sports, all of these things that we do to entertain ourselves. But how, how much of a priority is prayer for us actually in our everyday life? Do we actually go and shut the door and watch entertainment and pleasure take a back seat? Or do we approach prayer as mechanical? Do we approach a prayer as, as, as kind of like a tool? Is it some sort of benefit that we seek out God when we need him, that we seek out God when we want him, when we seek out God when we're expected to? Or is prayer something that we run to just for the closeness that it brings us with our Father? And that's what we want to highlight for, for this morning. We want to highlight that prayer should not be a chore. That prayer should be not something that you have to do, it should be an opportunity that we get to come before our Heavenly Father. We get to see God for who he is. We get to understand a little bit more about his love for us. We get to shut the door on entertainment and shut the door on all of these worldly pleasures and seek the face of God himself. So what's the function of prayer? Is function a magic lamp where you go into the room and you, you, you make your three wishes and you say, God, oh, I, I want all of these desires is prayer something where if I, if I speak my desires out into the Lord, then they're going to return to me? No, it's not. 
Prayer is not curating the world the way that we want it. Prayer is simply bringing ourselves to the face of God and spending time with him. We're not using our emotion to speak things into existence. The functional use of prayer is not to try and avoid evil, not to try and avoid distress, not to try and you know, to keep ourselves from experiencing all of these bad things. But there are people, there are people out there, and maybe you've met some people, that come to church and they think, you know what, if I go to church, if I worship hard enough, if I pray with enough intention, if I, if I do all of the spiritual exercises that God requires of me, then I'm going to reap those spiritual gains, right? Then, then God's surely going to bless me. I can, I can achieve my, my, uh, my position with God if I just do all of the, the laundry list of things that I know that God is expecting me to do. But what Paul is talking about in this section, and I'm going I'm to highlight this here, is that these people wrongly believe that prayer is going to benefit them to avoid all of these consequences. And that's just not the case. Because just because you have the title of Christian doesn't mean that, that prayer is going to entitle you to avoid all of these negative consequences. Prayer is not a tool. It's not a magic lamp. And it's not a way to avoid all the negativity in life. It's a connection with God in the midst of everyday life. And that brings us to our second point, is that prayer is a real answer to real life. Look, unless you have that longing for God, unless you're, you're drawn to the Father, right? Unless, unless you, you, you seek him out in private and you shut the door on all of your other ambitions, the reality that prayer addresses in this section will make complete sense to you. Look at, I'm just going to highlight this, but look at the reality that Paul is illustrating in Romans 8. He says, By him we cry, Abba, Father. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as pains of childbirth. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit intercedes with groans. As I'm reading through this section, you just think about all of the negative circumstances that life brings. When was the last time you cried out to God? We cry out when we're, when we're afraid. We cry out when we need help outside of ourselves or in desperate situations. I'm falling and I can't get up. Somebody help me, right? Like, like, that's when you cry out. When do you feel weakness? When do you feel like, oh, you know, it's more than just, you know, I, I, I'm tired after a long day. But you feel weak when, when you're just overcome by pressure, by stress, by the burden of everyday life. When do you feel suffering? When do you groan? Groaning is communicating like, a deep inward anxiety that you don't even have words for, right? That's the real life that Paul is addressing here. That's the reality that Paul is trying to point us back to, and, and Paul's saying the Spirit is here to equip you in those moments. So the question that I want to I pose as we get into this section is, we're going to find out what Christianity says to all of this, right? We're going to find out what is Paul even talking about when we talk about real life. William MacDonald uh, talks about this section like this. He says, We live in a sighing, sobbing, suffering world. Nature's music is in, a is in a minor key, and the blight of death is on every living thing. And whether we want to talk about it or not, I'm not just trying to be grim, but I'm trying to paint a picture of reality that everything is broken, that the world is not as it ought to be, and every single one of us has an expiration date. You know, it's one thing for the Lion King to sing about the circle of life. It's cute on the screen. But when the circle of life confronts you, you're faced with a reality that you don't really want to think about, that we try to push aside. 
Every single one of us, we don't look forward to going to a funeral. We don't look forward to loss of friends, of acquaintances. Even if you don't know the person all that well, you still feel grieved for the fact that the world is broken, it's not as it ought to be, and we've lost someone that meant something to other people. We know that life isn't as it ought to be. And in verse 23, Paul writes, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to son- sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul is saying that Christians groan, that the Spirit is there to help us in our weakness, that we are going to experience negativity, we are going to fall, we're going to experience the circle of life, and we're going to have to face it. And the reality is, I, I turned this a little bit too quickly, hold on one sec. Uh, that when tragedy strikes, the reality is that when, when weakness comes our way, um, we're all going to groan. When tragedy strikes, just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean that you're just going to avoid all the negativity, right? When a disease comes through town, it affects Christians and non-Christians. When tragedy strikes, when the, when the Twin Towers go down, it affects Christians, it affects non-Christians. Pearl Harbor, war, whatever it is. Negativity in life is not something that we can just run from and try and hide from and say, oh, you know, if I just do all the spiritual stuff, it won't. No. Weakness, groaning, crying, suffering, pain, it's a part of everyday life. So, when you think about how believers are supposed to function, when you think about what tools we're given to address all of those situations in life, the tool that we're given is the Holy Spirit drawing us to the Father through prayer. The Spirit helps us, in verse 26, helps us in our weakness, interceding for us with groans. Verse 26 assumes that the Christian life is a continual experience of weakness. That the Christian life, that everyday life is going to be real. You're going to get hit over the head with the two by four. You're going to get tossed around. You're going to have ups and downs. But you can experience stability when you encounter the face of your Father. It's not about whether or not you're going to have good days and bad days. It's about how you address the reality of whatever day you're having. So it's not what's going to happen around you, but how do you respond to the middle of it. And so here's the promise. The promise is that we're not given the Spirit to take away those things. The promise is that we're given the Spirit so that we can cry, we can suffer, we can groan, we can experience all those negativities, and we can cry and groan towards the Father. So we can be pointed back to God, who's there with his arms open wide, ready, willing, and able to comfort us in our hour of need. So when you experience negativity, when bad days come your way, how are you going to respond? Are you going to be like a boat in the middle of the ocean, bobbing around without an anchor, experiencing every wave of emotion, spewing negativity, and, and, and just exploding on people around you? Or are you going to have character, peace, and joy that comes from the experience? From, from the Spirit, to experience calm in the midst of a situation, of, 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 a, of a life scenario that ought not to be calm, but you're given that supernatural calm because you know the Father, because you're brought to the Father in the midst of your ups and downs. Think of it this way. For parents in the room, I, I myself know the day that my first child was born, I'll never forget the rest of my life. It was the biggest swing of anxiety of, of excitement, of nervousness, of, of even dull, boring, like, come on, can we get on with this? Like, we started off, we were walking around Pine Outlets, is the baby ready? No. We go home, we're sitting there, we're watching movies, is the baby ready? No. 
All of a sudden, I think the baby's ready. We zoom to the hospital. Then we get put in the holding chamber. Nope, the baby's not ready. You've got to sit in this little box. No windows, just sitting there waiting. It's like, okay, well, I'm in the waiting. I'm not in the waiting room, but I'm in the waiting room after the waiting room between I, when I get into my room, right? Then you go into the room, and it's like, oh, finally, baby's ready to come. No, no, no. You're going to be in the room for almost all day doing exactly what you were doing at home, watching movies, hanging out, waiting anxiously. I'm nervous, excited, but I just kind of want this experience to move on, right? Well, eventually it moved on. And what seemed like all of a sudden, I'm sitting there, we're watching a film, and all of a sudden the door opens, 20 people burst in, they're getting dressed in their gowns, the bed raises up, the bright light shines down, and I'm going to tell you this, the day of my, all my children's birth, really, it is nothing like what we do on a birthday. There was no happy birthday. Surprise, happy birthday. No, that wasn't reality. So I don't know who got the idea to bring cake and presents and candles, but it certainly wasn't the emotional experience of my son, of my daughter, right? We should give cake, presents, and candles to our moms. Just, just side, side note there. But anyways, you're exp- I got an applause for that. Awesome. Yeah, moms deserve it. That's right. So, so anyways, children come into the world. Surprise, happy birthday. Aunt, wrong. This is what happens. We're not greeted with a surprise happy birthday. We're greeted with a blood-curdling scream. And the scream is communicating all of these things in one noise, right? I'm cold. What's this bright light? Who are all these people? Why am I getting slapped around with a scratchy tag on my ankle? Why is there blood everywhere? What's that knife doing on that table? Who? I I don't even know where I am. I want to go back home. Somebody help me. And in that moment... You realize that the only comfort to this kid, this poor five-minute-old kid, is to be comforted in the arms of their parent. In, in, in some kid's case, it was mom. In one case, it was me because they were tending to mom. And, and I was, well, this is me. i got to go up and do it, right? And so you comfort the child in that moment. And what you realize is there's a reason why Paul talks about childbirth in this section. Because that whole experience of the newborn baby is a picture of what the Christian life is like. Because my children will not understand why they had a blood-curdling scream, why they were so scared in the moment. They're not going to get it. Even though every single person's attention, every single person's focus, all all of the people in that room were gathered around with all of the focus on the baby. They're still scared. They're still screaming. They still need to be comforted. And it's not until years later when the blood has been cleaned up, when the emotion has died down, when all the anxiety is gone, that that child is actually going to understand what happened that day. And that's what it's like for us. That's what it's like for Christians who are tossed about every single day by ups and downs, goods and bads, emotions pulling at our heartstrings. We're called to find peace in the arms of our Father even when we don't understand the scenario around us. The Spirit's goal is to grow us to be more like Jesus and to experience that relational closeness with God through our Monday through Saturday, through our good times and our bad. It refines us and allows us to draw close to our Father. The more times we do it, the easier it becomes. That's the goal. That's why the Spirit is there to help us in our weakness, 
Not to help us avoid our weakness, but to help us through it. So do you understand what it means to be a child of God? When you turn to verse 17 and you see, now if we're children of God, now that we're heirs to God and co-heirs with Christ, if we share in his sufferings so that we can share in his glory. We have to understand the immense privilege that we have the, the immense privilege that is unique to Christianity to be able to call God Father. And as I'm thinking about this, like, how do I, how do I, how would I explain to my son, like, like what, a, what a privilege it is that we can go to the God of the universe who created everything and call him Father. That we can have our own language, that we can call him Abba Father. That we can have a spirit that directs us back to him. How do we understand our position as sons and daughters? Well, I go to a movie that I'm quite familiar with. It's called Elf. Maybe some of you have seen it. Okay, Buddy the Elf goes from the North Pole all the way to, what, Manhattan or something like that? And he comes face-to-face with Walter Hobbs. And the first meeting between Buddy and his dad was not very glamorous. I'm here with my dad, and I love you. And he's like, oh my gosh, like, get this creep away from me, right? But what happens? Walter doesn't bring Buddy into his life because of any benefit that Buddy can bring to him, right? He, 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 he's trying to run away from this. Like, I don't, this guy's crazy. But, but Walter's wife is pleading with him, like, no, he's your son. He needs your help. And Buddy's only hope of, of provision through that time of literally his life being upturned was his claim as Walter's son. Without that claim, none of the movie even happens. Without that claim, he's, he's going to sleep in the mall until he gets kicked out every night and probably arrested, right? Like, he needed that claim as son in order to receive the benefits, in order to receive the provision, in order to receive the protection from his father. So do we as Christians understand the claim that we have as sons and as daughters of the Lord? Do we as, as Christians see that that claim is, is, is merely just our opportunity to say, you know what, I should go to church. Or you know what, if I live a good life and I do enough good spiritual things, then God will have to owe me something. Is that our claim as sons and daughters of God? No. The claim of the gospel is that Jesus lived a perfect holy life a perfect life that we couldn't live, died a death that we should die so that we could inherit the kingdom of God. When you go to work and you earn your owners, the owner of your company's money, right? You're earning the wages that are paid to you. But if the co- owner of that company is your dad, you don't have to do any of that work because as an heir, you already will receive some of his wealth, some of what he's built. So what is that wealth? What is... What is that inheritance that's coming to us? And once we understand what's coming to us as as promised children of God, we're going to spend eternity with God forever. This is the promise. This is our guarantee. Are we living that way? Do we live as though we've we've been adopted into God's family? Or do we allow the weakness, the groaning, the suffering, the pains of everyday life to try to draw us away from God? To say, you know what? I haven't been good enough. God can't possibly accept me. Why would God want anything to do with me because of all of these things that I've done? And the truth is that God desires intimacy with every single one of us, even when we mess up. I'm a, if you're a parent, here's another one. I have four wonderful kids. I wouldn't trade them for anything. And when my kids ask me to read books with them, when Aubrey comes up, my little girl, and she says, I want a snuggy daddy. In those moments, I know for, without a shadow of a doubt that I'm, the, I'm, I'm their father. 
These are my kids. I'm a father. This is a great, loving moment, right? But one of my pet peeves are pencils. I, when, I, when I step on a pencil, when I sit on a pencil, when I see pencils in the bathroom, they're all over every corner of the house, right? I, I don't know what it is about pencils, but they get on my nerves. <laughs> and for the 500th time, when, I've, when, I've, when, when the pencil has pricked me in the foot for the last time, what happens? Well, if my kids were my employees, they'd be fired. <laughs> but they're not my employees. They're my children. And in those moments that I have to correct them, in those moments where I have to teach them, in those moments where they embarrass me publicly, in those moments where I, I just feel so overwhelmed with, with their behavior that I can't possibly get it straight, it reminds me that I feel more like those, their father when I have to correct them. I accept that responsibility of raising my kids the way that they should go. And I step up to the plate, and I do it, and we, you enter into the uncomfort, you, you discipline the kids. I tell myself, when, when I have to correct my daughter, I'm like, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you, because it breaks my heart to see my, my, my darling little girl acting like that, but we have to set her straight. And I have to step up to the plate and be her dad. And God is the same way. So even if you haven't thought about God, even if you haven't touched your Bible, even if prayer seems like the last thing that you want to do, just understand this. Your, God the Father is not only your Father when you love him back. God is still your Father, even after you've messed up for the 5,000th time. He still has his arms open wide. He's still inviting you into that intimate relationship with him. He still wants you, no matter how far gone you think you are, the answer is not to avoid prayer and run away from God. The answer is to use the power of the Holy Spirit that you've been given as a child of God. Use your position as a son or a daughter of the Father and run into his arms. Don't run away from him. Run towards him because he loves you, he cares for you, and he wants you to get through whatever situation befalls you. The objective truth of our position as children of God needs to feel subjectively real to us. The, the conscious understanding, yes, I'm God's son, yes, I'm God's son. We need to experience that emotion, that longing, that desire for God. And our last point this morning, how does prayer keep us focused on the hope ahead? We've talked about prayer not just being a tool. It's an invitation to our relationship. We've talked about understanding our position as sons and daughters of God. So how do we connect prayer with hope? And I want to end our time today with all the understanding that I, I, I hope we've gotten over the, the, the first half here to, to go to verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I was asking myself, like, who is this hope written for? Like, Paul's writing to the Roman church. He's talking about hope. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about how the Spirit is supposed to, to help us. Like, who is he writing to? Why is this so important? Well, the fact is, Paul was writing this section to Roman believers who were under persecution every single day. They were under persecution from Jewish religious leaders who saw Christianity as a threat to their religious power structure of the society that they built. He was writing to early Christians who were under persecution from the Roman government, who, because in some areas where, where, where Christians were seen as like, oh, I'm just, they're just rebellious people. They don't want to conform to the patterns of society. They don't want to worship the Roman gods. They're not going to fall in line with everybody else. That they're going to be, uh, they're going to be denied rights. 
They're going to be imprisoned. They're going to be, you know, set aside in society. Those are the people that he's writing for. And in fact, five years after this was written, uh, Nero would take the, take the throne in Rome. And Nero would have uh, persecution just ramped up. It escalated. Christians were, uh, their homes were destroyed. Christians were sent to the Colosseum. Christians were impaled on stakes, burnt alive. Christians by the hundreds, they would be crucified along the city highways as a warning to anybody who would ever consider converting to Christianity. So who would dare join the fold of the people like that? How can this living hope help us in this situation? Well, what we know from history is Paul writes about this living hope that we have that has not yet been seen. And the fact is, it worked. The hope that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 8 came to, to grow this Christian movement to a worldwide phenomena. That even when Christians fierced the fiercest persecution, even when Christians had to endure the, the absolute worst that society could possibly throw at them, we knew that they faced their suffering with joy. That they found peace in the midst of their uh, scenario. That the believers were, had such a... Uh, they had such a poise in the midst of their persecution that they would sing worship songs while they were being killed, that they would be praying and forgiving the people that were killing them. And, and what we know from uh, the church father Tertullian, he said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church because the more you killed them, the stronger they got. And, and what Nero meant as a warning to anybody who'd be walking along the streets and seeing people hanging there, crucified, dying, was actually being used by God as a testimony of the living hope that every single believer had. So how do you get that? It's, it, how, how, do you get, how, do you get, how do you use your living hope to propel you through persecution? What did those early Christians have that we so desperately long for? the meaning in our life, the, 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 the ability to endure all of these trials. Verse 23 again. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait, as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. The early Christians had a living hope that shaped the way that they saw the situations and the circumstances around them. Humans we're shaped by what we believe about the future, right? This is what hope means to every single one of us. Whatever you believe about your future is going to impact the way that you see your everyday life, okay? If you think about the worst job you could possibly imagine, okay, I, there's a show called Dirty Jobs. I'm sure you saw something about it on YouTube at some point. But as I was thinking about this, I used to be, or I used to be a quality inspector at a medical device plant and I was in a climate-controlled room looking at medical tools. It was actually quite clean. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, this is, this is a pretty nice job. So what would the worst job I could possibly think of? How about if I was a manure inspector? That sounds like a pretty dirty job to me, right? Like, I, I'm not signing up for that. So, okay, that was like the worst thing I could think of. So, like, all right, manure inspector. Whatever that worst job is, you can have your own ideas. I'm going to run with this. I'm taking two people out of this room by random, so it might be you. I'm picking them up, I'm dropping them in the field. Ten hours a day for the next year, you are my manure inspectors. Who's excited? Sounds like a dream job to me, right? Now, here, here's, the, here's, the, here's the deal. 
The first person, I'm going to go up to him, hey, you know what, hard times, hard labor, we got to get this done. If we want crops, they got to grow. So I slap him on the back, hey, you're going to work really hard for me for the next year, I'm going to give you 20 grand. They're looking at me like, oof, you sure are generous, Pastor Will. It's like, yeah, we, we only do the best here at the manure inspecting facility, right? The second person I go up to, hard times, hard labor, but you're going to work, you're going to work, it's going to be tough. It's not going to be a glamorous job, but if you can get through this manure inspecting job for the next year, I'm going to give you $20 million. You can see how two people in two different situations are going to see their future completely different. Person number one over here, within the first week, they don't want to do it. They want to throw in the towel. Hey, this isn't worth it. I can get $20,000 doing anything. Like, why would, I, why would I subject myself to the 90-plus degree weather we had, to rain, to snow? I have to be out here inspecting manure every single day. I can't do that anymore. Person B over here, they're inspecting manure. They're smiling up to their arms in it. They're whistling while they work. Why? Because then they know what the future is going to bring after that year of work. Their present situation, two people, same situation, same circumstance, same work, are going to experience their present reality completely different, all based on the hope that they have for their future. So believers, Christians in the room, even if you don't know God, where is your hope? What do you believe about your future? Do you believe that you're going to die? You're just a small cog in the circle of life? Do you believe that nothing that happens on earth is going to matter? Do you believe that one day you're just going to be forgotten unless you're a statue somewhere? Do you believe that, that this time on earth is insignificant? Or do you believe that one day we're going to have a heavenly family reunion where we come face to face with the Father that we know we've been adopted into his family as sons and as daughters? The, the person that we can get a taste every single day as we come face to face with our Father through prayer. What do you believe about your future? Like in verse 17, we share in his sufferings in order that we also might share in his glory and that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Here's how Paul finishes the chapter. I'm not, I, I have to preach another sermon in order to go through all of this, but he says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long, considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor future, nor any powers, height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our hope. That's our promise. And the early Christian believers took God at his word because unless you believe that hope with unshakable faith, unless you, by the Spirit's power, can go to the Father confidently in the midst of the storms of, the emo of, of, of everyday life, Paul's reminding believers that we grow stronger in our faith as we bring all of these things to the Lord because we know the hope that we have. And this gave the early Christians poise not only to endure the persecution, but because of the hope that they had as children of God. So whatever the situation is for you, when life seems hopelessly bleak, 
When the blight of death seems to be surrounding you, remember who you are. Remember the hope that you have. Remember the spirit that indwells you as a believer of God to bring all of these things to the Father. So today, many of us, we're not going to be facing the Colosseum. We're not facing a lion's den. We're not facing, you know, the fiery furnace. But the situations that we face, cancer diagnosis, a pink slip, a loss in the family, an unexpected bill in the mail, all of these things our fears, all of these things we suffer through, all of these things cause us to groan and cry out to the Lord. But remember, even if you're feeling inferior, even if you don't know how you can carry on, Dumbledore says in the third Harry Potter book, he says, happiness can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. What we learned in last week's message from Pastor Andy is that remembering is intentional. And I'm pleading with you this morning to remember who you are as children of God. Remember who you serve, uh, our Heavenly Father. Remember who indwells us all, the Spirit who helps us in our weakness. Remember that even the deepest longings of your soul, the longing for love, the deepest longings of your soul, the longing that what we do on this earth actually matters, all fulfills when you understand your living hope through Jesus Christ. When you understand the gospel, when you understand what Jesus has done for all of us so that we can experience that relational closeness with the Father, you can experience a little taste of the hope that is to come right now, and it's completely free. Because on that cross, Jesus died and experienced hopelessness. He experienced separation from the Father when the Father forsake the Son. He bore the, the weight, the wrath of God for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He, he took on that willingly and took the hopelessness of experiencing for the first time separation from the Father. He experienced that cosmic hopelessness so that we could find our hope in him. He took the hopelessness that we should have taken. He took the death that we deserve to die so that we can have the hope that he had, so we can know the relational intimacy with the Father that he had, so that we can find our hope in him. That's the gospel. When you understand the price that that hope costs, when you understand what Jesus went through, that's the first step towards becoming a son or a daughter of the Lord. The second thing you have to understand is the resurrection. And this is huge. Since Jesus resurrected from the dead, since Jesus defeated death, defeated sin once and for all, that means that no matter what happens, no matter what trouble comes your way, no matter how you're tossed about on the sea of, of, of ups and downs, you can endure it. Because the hope that Jesus promises is real. The hope is tangible. We've seen it. There's evidence that Jesus came back, he defeated death, and promised that this, once, that, that this broken world is going to be restored. And you can take that hope to the bank. So when you face these bad situations, when you don't see an end in sight, when, when, when life, when the, the, the blight of death surrounds you, you know you can overcome it because you have two options. You either groan through the Spirit grow through the Spirit, run to the Father, grow from it, and become a better person. Or, I guess the worst thing is it could kill you. But ultimately, that perfects us. 
and brings us to our heavenly family reunion where we see God face to face and you can get a taste of that today. One of my favorite movies is called Big Fish. It's a movie from Tim Burton where it illustrates this guy's crazy life and he uses these elaborate stories to depict all of his life experiences. And in, in one of the flashbacks, he was talking about when he was a little kid, there was this witch in town and she had this magic eye. And anybody who looked into the magic eye would see the, their eventual demise. They would see how they would die. So a lot of people, they were afraid. Oh, that's the witch. you got to stay away. I don't want to know how I was going to die. But this character was different. He went over to the witch and he said, you know what? This is what he said. On one hand, if dying was all you thought about, it could kind of screw you up. But it could kind of help you, couldn't it? Because you know that everything else, you can survive. And as believers, we know that because of what Christ has done for us, the worst thing that can happen to us is that we can die a physical death. But the spiritual death, our eternal state forever, has already been secured because of what Jesus did on the cross. So we only get a a tiny taste of death, but we'll never experience the actual full blunt force of it. Because Jesus took that. Jesus took God's wrath. Jesus took the punishment for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Jesus took all of that so that we wouldn't have to. And this is the hope that we have. That death only makes us better. That death only brings us face to face with our Father. That we don't have to be afraid of, of, of what the future may bring because we know that we can grow through it and we know that we're going to be made better because of it. So therefore, the worst things in life can only lead to the best things. And the best things are yet to come. Well, when we impact God's word, we don't want to just be somebody who knows the word. We want to know the person of Jesus Christ. And you can't know Jesus just by knowing things about him. You need to know him personally. And so this is the thing I want you to understand this morning. Do you have a relationship with Almighty God? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, he created you to have a relationship with him. Did you know that? He, you were wonderfully and fearfully made in your mother's womb. You were created to know God. The problem is we've sinned. We've done something wrong in our past, in our present, and undoubtedly in our future. And that sin separates us from Almighty God. You see, God requires perfection in heaven. And not one of us, including you, including myself, we're not perfect. And so sin separates us from Almighty God. And what people try to do is they try to get to God by religion. They try to get to God by doing good works or to prove themselves. But none of these things will get us to God. In fact, our righteousness is but filthy rags, is what Scripture says. And so it requires a miraculous, uh, a, a miraculous happening. And that miraculous happening is this. It's not ourselves. It's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. You see, God came 2,000 years ago as the God-man, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place to take the punishment of our sin, to take on God's wrath. Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. He stood in your place, and God saw your sin upon Christ. And Jesus died on the cross. The wrath of God came upon Christ. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. Jesus Christ died for you. But because he's a perfect, sinless sacrifice, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And his resurrection demands now our response. And the question is this. Have you placed your full faith 
in Jesus Christ, upon Jesus Christ, what he did for you. The Bible says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ was risen from the dead, you will be saved. All those who cry out in the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, that means die spiritually, but have everlasting life. Have you personally placed your faith and trust in Jesus? If you're not sure or you know you haven't, right now is the time. You might think like, well, let me get things figured out first. No, listen, today's the day of your salvation, Scripture says. That means that you come as you are, but Christ doesn't leave you as you are. He takes you where he is going. So why don't you just pray with me right now? Why, why don't you consider Jesus? Why don't you place your faith and trust in Jesus right now? Uh, this prayer that I'm about to pray isn't going to save you. It's Christ who's already saved you. I'm just helping you communicate to God. So if you want to place your faith and trust with Jesus right now, will you just pray along with me? Just say, Lord Jesus, I realize I've sinned. And I realize I need a Savior. So Lord Jesus, will, uh, will you save me? I place my full faith and trust upon you. Thank you for dying on the cross, saving me from my sins. Thank you for raising from the dead. Help me follow you now. I trust you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus right now, the Bible says you have become a son or daughter of the King. You have been forgiven of your sins. And know this, that once you are held in the grip of God, nothing can pluck you from his hand. Also know this, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, there's a party in heaven happening right now. Uh, when just one person gives their life to Jesus, the angels rejoice in heaven. Will you let us know if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Just scan the QR code on the screen and we would love to connect with you, to pray with you, to help you in your next steps in your relationship with Jesus. We can't wait to see you be part of us uh, each and every Sunday uh, in person at Kenosha City Church. God bless you in the decision that you made today. As a church, it is our honor to be a small part in all that God is doing in and through your life. And we would love to continue with you on that journey. If you became a Christian today, your next step is baptism. Baptism is when you go public with your faith in Jesus as a symbol of going from an old life into a new one. If you would like to find out more about baptism, all you have to do is go to kenosha.church events. Beyond that, if you want to know more about your next steps as a new Christian, all you have to do is go to kenosha.church slash next steps.